I think you would agree one of the reasons for skepticism outside the church or maybe indifference even inside the church regarding Jesus' return, one of the reasons that we as Christians can get lazy about this, that one of the reasons that the church is not so eagerly looking forward to the return of Jesus is just how long it is taking. Dick Lucas, in a beautiful sermon on this passage, says it may seem to the church... Uh, that for 2,000 years, Jesus has left us on a drafty corner. It's taken a long time. After his resurrection from the dead, Jesus remained on the earth for some 40 days. And after that, we read about it in the first chapter of the book of Acts. He gathered his disciples and he charged them that they would be his witnesses. And then he ascended into heaven. And while they're watching this transpire, the angel who accompanied them in this moment said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And since then, the followers of Jesus have been expecting just this, for him to come in the same way, for him to come in the clouds. But it's been such a long time. And over time, the delay has caused many to conclude that he's not coming back it has made others who believe he is suspect about it. Maybe we misunderstood. Maybe we got it wrong. There was a special consternation about this in the early church who expected an imminent return of Jesus, which could have been uh, handled if they had paid attention to this proverb, I think. Many believe that Jesus would be our bee. The cure for that angst is found in this parable. The bridegroom doesn't come when he's expected, does he? In the parable of the talents that Mike preached about a little while ago, we read, it was after a long time that the master returned. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 10 say, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Do not be discouraged, believer. As always, there is a purpose in God's timing and a perfection to his plan. The long delay of the bridegroom does not mean that the wedding has been canceled. So Calvin wrote of this parable's words to the church, It is not enough to have a lively zeal for a while. We must have, in addition, a perseverance that never tires. We expect that word out of John Calvin, wouldn't mean that, that idea of perseverance. That's what we have to have, both a lively zeal for the Lord now, but also a perseverance that never tires because the bridegroom will return and he who has held the door open all these years will eventually, most certainly, and suddenly close it. It will happen as it has happened in this morning's parable. Returning from their foray into the streets, their quest for oil 
to properly welcome the bridegroom, the foolish bridesmaids find themselves on the outside of the celebration. Half of them have gone in to be with the Lord, and that is good news for the follower of Jesus. Take that to heart, would you, Christian, that the faithful will be rewarded by Jesus. If you are ready for him when he comes back, you will go with him into eternity. Anyone's devotion to Christ will not go unnoticed. You will accompany him forever. Half have done that. Half have gone in. But the other half have not. And they have come to the door of the feast and they knock and they plead, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered truly, I say to you, I do not know you. They are given no entrance. He does not open the door. When that eternal door is closed, he will not ever open it again. Not any time, not for anybody. Again, I quote Dick Lucas. He says in what I would uh, describe as a British drawl, if there is such a thing, there's an uncomfortable severity to Christianity. This isn't sentimental. Not the kind of church we grew up with. It doesn't matter what you did. Everyone goes to heaven. Not a trace of it in the gospel. So forgive that. It was horrible. Uh, let me, let me um, read that in a way you can understand it. There's an uncomfortable severity to Christianity. This isn't sentimental. It's not the kind of church that we grew up in where it doesn't matter what you did. Everyone goes to heaven. There's not a trace of that in the gospel. And there isn't, beloved. We may read it every day in the obituaries, but there's not a trace of it in the gospel. The word of God's not given to, to assure us all of fairy tale endings, is it? Who doesn't love a fairy tale ending? I remember years ago, a long time ago now, I think I was probably a sophomore in high school, in our English class, we were given a story, and then we were given alternate endings to that story, and we were just asked to choose the ending that you prefer. And so I chose the ending that I preferred to that story. I was mortified when it's revealed to the rest of the class that me and a bunch of other girls are romantics. You would never accuse me of that, would you? Huh? Who doesn't want to see a fairy tale ending? But the Bible is not a book whose conclusion we get to write, where everybody lives happily ever after. Five out of ten bridesmaids joined Jesus at the wedding feast, and five were shut out. The ones who are prepared will enter the joy of the Lord, and those who are unprepared will be excluded. So the implication of this parable is obvious. Are you prepared? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Well, what would such preparation look like? 
First and most important is a relationship with Jesus. Not a knowledge of him. Not an acknowledgement of him. But a relationship with him. Not a family connection with him, as in my grandmother's a devout Christian. My father is a believer, and all that covers me. Remember, this salvation and eternal life and readiness is non-transferable. So I'm speaking to you about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have one? A personal relationship. That's the first part of being prepared for his return, right? To know him and to make sure that he knows you that way. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession plus belief is needed for salvation. Confessing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has done what the Bible says he's done, that he has borne the sins of humanity to the cross to pay the price for them with his death in order that you might be free from the power and the consequences of your sin, in order that you might be offered the gift of salvation, of eternal life. For you, he suffered. And for you, he died. He was buried, and then he rose from the dead. And he has paid your debt, my friend. He has paid the debt you owe to God for your sin. And all you need to do is confess that and believe it. And get your life in order and let Jesus be your king. So the first aspect of being prepared for Christ's return is to have a relationship with him. And the second is plain readiness for his coming. Are you ready for his return? Maybe you are convinced today that your Christian walk has grown a little bit cold. Maybe your spiritual sensitivity is not what it once was. Maybe, maybe you long ago stopped thinking about and preparing for the Lord's return. You've gotten busy with the things of this world. I want to encourage you to think, as William Law once put it, that each of us is only always standing on the brink of another world. Quite possibly, this whole pandemic has you discouraged. Maybe it even has you despondent. And instead of moving towards the Lord during this time, you've actually sort of been drifting away from Him. My friend, the Scripture encourages us not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this. I think I find it to be good advice. And folks who counsel with me have heard it as well. He said, stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. In other words, get out of your own head. But when you start talking to yourself, talk to yourself with this. Talk to yourself with truth. Bring the Bible to bear on all of your thoughts and all of your choices. What does the Bible say about Jesus' return? It says this, Christian, your king is coming. Know it, believe it, prepare for it. He wants you to be ready and he deserves for you to be ready. So get up from your spiritual slumber 
and start getting ready. You know what the Bible says about the lukewarm, don't you? In the book of Revelation, that he will spew us out of our mouths. It is time for the Holy Spirit to light the fire in your soul once again. And for you to become an active part of his kingdom work as we wait for his return. So whether you have never made that profession of faith in Jesus, or you would admit that his return has dropped down quite a few pegs on your list of things to think about, or maybe even if you do wake up every day wondering and hoping, maybe today he comes. Remember, we are always, only, always on the brink of another world. The poet John Donne asked a good question. Honestly, I don't think his answer is that impressive, but his question is a good one. What if this present were the world's last night? Would you be ready to meet him? If it were, the bridegroom comes. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour.